Okay, if you need a title, my title is that God is the God of more than enough. And I really want to emphasize that. And so there's a couple things I need to help you understand. First of all, in about three weeks or two weeks, I'm going to get to travel back to Japan. I went there about this time last year. And when we were there, I spent some time with our host pastor. I got to speak and train and do some teaching there. Stephen Kaler is his name. And while we were traveling, it was my first time in Japan, and I said, Stephen, can you tell me more about the Japanese people? And I had all of these questions. I'm a relentless learner. I probably annoy people with my curiosity, but it's just kind of the way God made me. And so I wanted to know about that, and I wanted to know about this, and I had questions for him. And eventually, he got in my face, and he said, Now, Alan, listen to me. I'm going to say three things. I want you to pay attention. And he kind of squared off on me like he was going to be serious, you know? And this is not usual for him because Stephen is the most gentle, loving pastor you'll ever meet. And so I said, okay, what do you have to say? He said, I have three things. Here it is. This is a free country. We're in charge. What do you want to do? And so I said, oh, Stephen, that's cute that you say that. See, let me explain to you about how Japan works. This is really a little bit more like a socialist environment. And so, they've got, so I started explaining to him what the environment looks like, and he puts his finger in my face and said, I'm going to tell you again. Listen, are you ready? This is a free country. We're in charge. What do you want to do? And so now I'm a little bit annoyed, see? So I said, I want to know why those guys are doing that over there. He said, great, I'll tell you. What else do you want? And in that moment, in that moment, I realized he was doing something. See, he saw a boundary, a wall, a place of restraint that was in my life under which I was operating, and it was annoying him because he was used to more space than what I was living in, and he was trying to help me see it. He wouldn't tell me it was there. He said, I want to invite you to see how trapped you are by imagining this. And so I'm going to invite you to do it with me. Just think for a second that this is an entirely free country. And we, we're actually completely in charge. What would you dare to dream? And if what you dare to dream under those conditions is beyond where you first were willing to dream, then the statement worked. Because you found a wall and you dared to move beyond it. And that's what he did for me. I didn't know it at the time, but on my way home, as I'm traveling on that very long airplane flight, that thought is just inside my head and is cooking on me. And by the time I got back here, I realized I am functioning with a series of walls and boundaries in my life that God did not put there, and they are active restraints to the freedom that God has for me. So, God being the gentleman that he is, he decided he would work with me on the easy stuff first. The physical things that I can casually change, not the harder things yet. And so one day, uh, because I liked him, I like to ride mountain bikes. I was out riding a mountain bike. And, you know, for the most part, 50-year-olds have no business riding mountain bikes. But hey, I did it this morning, and I'm still here to tell the story. So I'm riding, and, the, and there's different terrain. You, you come around the corner, and sometimes there's some rocks, and there's a downhill. And this one particular section is really... Pucker factor worthy. And so I turn the corner and I start to go down with my bike and I realize, okay, 
prudence needs to prevail here. And so I dismount and I start to walk. And a younger guy on a bike comes by me, flying down the rocks, all the while shouting, it's not as bad as you think. Now, first I wanted to look for a rock and just let him have it. But then I realized, wait a second, there's a wall here. Okay, fine. Next time I come around that corner, I need to go five feet further because I'm not willing to put up with that wall. And the next time, five feet further, and the next time I'm going all the way, baby. And so I started with my mountain bike riding. I like to restore old cars. I have an old car. And the old car said to me, you have no business monkeying with this old car. You're not a mechanic. You don't know anything about fixing stuff. And if you take it apart, it's going to sit in the garage in a bucket of bolts for the rest of its life. You better leave it alone. I said, uh-huh. Thank you very much. I just found another wall. So last Christmas, I stripped that thing down to every nut and bolt and washer. And then I rebuilt it all. And now I'm getting to use it. See, but I wasn't willing to put up with that wall. See, God was pushing on me. He's helping me see that there are things that are holding me back. And he didn't put them there. And somehow I have gotten so comfortable with these things that they provide a sense of confinement for me and I can't get beyond them. So this led me to a place of realizing that this is God. He wants me to live a life without these external constraints, without the hindrance of these imposed walls, whether I put them there or somebody else put them there. And then I saw John 10, 10 that says that Jesus came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly, abundantly, meaning without the walls, without the constraint. So what does this kind of abundance look like? Well, I wanted to take a tour through some scripture and give you a few verses. These are from the New Living Translation. Then I'm just going to fly through them because I just want to set up a, an idea. I want to I build your confidence. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 10 says, For God is the one who provides seed. God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Who produced the generosity harvest? Thank you. Okay, Romans 8.32. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all, won't he also give us everything else? Okay, people, I got two kids. How many of you who's got only one are ready to cough him up for a group of folks who may or may not even be any good at knowing how to work with this guy? That's some serious generosity. That's some serious no boundary situation. James 1 verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it. He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. And God will generously provide all you need. And then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Does this sound like a generous God? Does this sound like a more than enough God? Come on. He is so rich in kindness, Ephesians 1 7. And grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Would you be willing to be so generous? 
as to spend the life of your only child, to be generous to a people that are yet to come and will struggle to live in a way that believes how much you love them. Psalm 65, from 9, verse 13. You take care of the earth and water it, O God, making it rich and fertile. The river of God has plenty of water. It provides a bountiful harvest of grain, for you have ordered it so. You drench the plowed ground with the rain, melting the clods and leveling the ridges. You soften the earth with the showers and bless its abundant crops. You crown the year with a bountiful harvest. Even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness become a lush pasture, and the hillsides blossom with joy. The meadows are clothed with flocks of sheep, and the valleys are carpeted with grain. They all shout and sing for joy. Come on, I'm talking about a God who does not have a boundary, and He does not need you to be having boundaries. 1 Chronicles 29, 10, verse through 12. Then David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at, the dis and at your discretion, O God, people are made great and given strength. I'm talking about a generous God. I'm talking about a God who wants us to live without boundaries. So I want to take us then back to a place where the beginning came. There's this, there's this theological concept called the law of first occurrence. And, and when something occurs in the Bible for the first time, it sort of sets up a law and it says you could interpret the word of God this way from this point forward. It's the, called the law of first occurrence. And so if you go back in your mind and just imagine for a second how, <clears throat> how close God was to, to the earth when he built it, then, then the leaves and the trees and that which was made and covered the earth was newest and had the dew of God's touch on it most freshly right after he created it. Would you not agree? Okay, it's been 2,000 years or more since then, and so the earth has continued to reproduce after its own kind. But <clears throat> that moment was the closest that God had ever come to actually touching the stuff himself and creating it the way that it was meant to be. That is a context. God is setting up a context when he said, I'm going to create man and I'm going to put him in a place and we're going to make them after our own kind. He created an environment and set them in it. It is a context and God is managing the context on purpose because he's trying to send a message to the two individuals who lived in that space. And the context is this. If you take one of every different kind of tree that exists, there are over 23,000 different species of trees. And so if Eden, when it was made, had just one of each of the different kinds of trees, one walnut tree, 
one oak, one orange tree, one peach, one plum. Then there would be 23,000 trees of that kind. The thing is, though, God didn't stop there because just the apple section alone. Folks, how many different kinds of apples do you think there need to be? Right? I mean, we got red ones, we got green ones, we got ones that taste like sawdust, we got kinds that are real crispy and fresh, there are some that are juicy, there are some that will make you go, right? And small ones, big ones, fat ones, thin ones, thick skin, thin skin, and I got to about 20 and now I'm out. Do you know if you look it up, there are more than seven and a half thousand different varieties of apples. So, come on, if we go back to Eden and we, and we just imagine that all these trees that God had created are in Eden, and just the apple section alone, if there's just one tree of every kind of apple tree that exists, then only the apple section alone has seven and a half thousand trees in it. And there are an additional 22,999 types of trees, all with their own varieties inside them in Eden. There are over 32,000 different species of fish. 32,000 different species of fish. We are talking about an abundant God. We are talking about a God who's trying to frame the context of humanity and say, I'm going to put you into this environment. 32,000 kinds of fish. Come on. Fat ones, thin ones, long ones, skinny ones, blue ones, green ones, ones with two eyeballs, one with more. I got to a thousand fish. I'm out. 32,000. How many is necessary for it to be good? How many is then necessary for it to be abundant? And then somewhere down there we get to 32,000. In a way, you could say, it feels like God's showing off a little bit. Astronomers estimate that the observable universe has more than 100 billion galaxies. Our own Milky Way is home to more than 300 billion stars, all of these at his hand. 300 billion. Do you know how big that number is? Okay, listen. If you make a dollar a minute, It'll take you 11 days to become a millionaire. Now, I'll take that deal if anybody's got one for me, but I'm just saying, it'll take you 11 days to get to a millionaire. How much longer do you keep up that earning pace to get to 1 billion? Because I'm trying to show you the difference between 1 million and 1 billion. If you get to a million in 11 days, how much longer to get to a billion? It's 31 years. 31 years at the same earning pace. That's the difference between 1 million and 1 billion. And there are 300 billion of these stars. Come on. How many is necessary for God to make a point? How many, really? And then in the middle of all of that, I'm, I'm not even going to tell you about it. I'm just going to read it. Okay. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, to be like us. They will reign 
over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals, all the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And this is what he said. Be fruitful and multiply. Live in abundance. Don't live behind walls. Fill the earth. Govern it. Rain over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God looked at it and he said, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life and that, it, and that, it, and that is what happened. And then God looked over all he had made and he said that it was very good. And then... He formed man out of the dust of the earth and he put him inside the garden. And when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth at that time. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he placed a man that he had made. And the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. And in the middle of the garden he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden, then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called Fishens, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. There's aromatic resin flowing out of the trees. An onyx stone are also found there. The second branch, called Gion, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Asher. And the fourth branch is called the Euphrates. And the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him and said, You may eat freely of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the, good of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you shall surely die. People, how hard do you have to look to find one tree in the middle of... This, this Eden that has literally got thousands of trees in it. How hard do you have to look? I don't know what your, book, your, your children's stories look like, but mine painted a garden with two trees in it. There's not much to choose from. Either way, I'm in trouble. But that's not reality. This, is, this, this reality is talking about an abundance that's created by God. And, and God was sending a message to Adam and Eve. And his message was this. I am going to provide for you in such a way that you don't even have... There's no way that you're going to run out of resources. He was managing the context of the place in which he put humanity. This is the law of first occurrence. What God is saying is... We have made mankind in our image and we're going to place them in an environment so that they get to live the way we live. With abundance. We are built for it. Okay, what is a limousine for? It's for carrying fancy people in extreme luxury, yes? Is it good for hauling dirt? 
No, you don't put dirt in a limousine. Could you put a bucket load of dirt in a truck and carry it with that? Yes. That's what it's built for. The limousine is built to carry people. The truck is built to carry dirt. You and I, we are built to have no walls and to operate in abundance. And the reason God wants that to be true and, and the reason there's evidence for it is because if you look in Genesis, he put two people in a place that was so abundant, it could have fed thousands of people. There isn't even a necessity to put four rivers in the area. There's only two people. You can only bathe and drink that much water. <laughs> Instead, he's got to put four. And then it's not enough that the rivers are cool, but they got to be laced with gold. Do you see what I'm saying? I am trying to overwhelm you with scriptural evidence that verifies the fact that you and I are built to not have walls, to live without the boundaries that we place in our lives, and that this is the way God meant for it from the beginning. It was meant to be this way. So what's the problem then? The problem is that the world belongs to the devil and he's teaching us otherwise. He's sending us messages that say, there is not enough. And you better, you better manage what little you've got as well as you can. In fact, <laughs> schools that teach economics build off of this very fundamental principle that there's only so much and you need to spread it out and make it last. That's what the whole sense of economics is about, managing a limited amount of resource. What I'm telling you is schools and educational systems are training us into thinking that we do not have what we need, that we, are not, that we are not able to access the more than enough that God is talking about. And folks, I'm not just talking about physical resources. I'm not talking about money or, or stuff, because all that is going to burn up by the time we leave here. I'm talking about the more than enough that is an operating freedom in your mind and mind that allows you to have so much, you get to give that away. I'm about to lose my stuff right here. <laughs> Dr. Jim Richards wrote a book called How to Stop the Pain. He has three doctorates, so the brother ought to know what he's talking about. In the book, the first few chapters, he deals with the biggest issue that humanity faces. And it has this idea, <laughs> I kid you not, he calls it lack, a mentality of lack, that we do not have what we need, that there is a wall that holds me back beyond which I cannot go, a place where I have to stay inside. Now, I don't know how it is that you got yours. I'm pretty sure I understand how I got mine. I don't really care how they got there. I just am interested in finding them and moving them. So I want to ask you a few questions, and these questions are just designed to provoke in you some thoughts about, could this be a wall for me? Could there be a wall here in my life? Because I'm going to show you how to get out. So what about your circumstances? Could the circumstances of your life produce a wall that holds you back? Is there a boundary that's out there? Could it be that relationships and the way those relationships have played out in your life have taught you some things and those things hold you back in the way that you relate to other people? 
Could your relationships be providing a boundary? What about your outlook? Do you have a negative outlook or do you have a positive outlook? Is there a perspective that you have that you got trained in somehow where you hold back and you expect the worst and it's always been that way? Could there be a wall there that's holding you back? What about the way you were raised? Were you taught by your parents to fear change? If you're part of a military home, the average research, or the research shows the average military home moves 11 times from the time you start school to the time you finish high school. If you watched your parents do that and you went with them, and every time that change happened, you saw your parents white-knuckling that situation, you will have learned that change is bad. What did your parents teach you to fear? Did they train you that emotional response is not okay? Go to your room until you finish crying, then you can come out. Did that affect teach you that emotional outburst or emotional release is not welcome in the home? And did the wall be built in that place that might hold you back from fully feeling all that God wants you to feel? Were your emotions validated? Were they, were they talked about? Did, did people help you make sense of them? How were you comforted? I'm not talking about if you fell down and bruised your knee or if you, or if you, if you did bad on something, but if, if a seriously emotional situation happened, how were you comforted? Were your parents there? Did they model the way God would comfort you? And if they didn't, did you learn that you've got to make it on your own? Could there be a wall there? What about your weaknesses? Were those weaknesses exposed? Were you made fun of? Did that teach you never to show weakness? Because weakness is for sissies. Or were you taught that weakness is okay and that everybody has it? What about your strengths? Were your strengths identified? Were they built on? Were they understood? Were they given healthy boundaries? Or were you allowed to run free in your own life, doing whatever you want with all of your volume buttons cranked up to 10 and everybody's running around next to you going, ah, too loud, turn it down. What did that do to teach you about how you interact with other people? Could a wall have come up in that spot? What about fear? Fear of failure. If you've had failure, then you know what it feels like. Was that failure dealt with in a way that helped you understand it? Was it, was it tolerated? Or was it framed correctly for you? These days, do you operate with a larger than normal level of fear? Look, it's one thing to fear falling off your bike because you're riding over slippery rocks because, you know, you're going to bruise a rib. That's called prudence. That's a gift of God. But it's another thing to not even get on the bike because you're afraid to try. What about success? What about success? Could you have had rampant success in a place that ran away with you and left you feeling like anything you touch is going to turn to gold? And then the next thing that you do doesn't? And then you come unglued because you have no context to know how to deal with that? All of these places produce walls and boundaries that influence the way we respond to the world and they hold us back. What about shame? 
Did your parents use shame as a discipline tool to manipulate the right kind of behavior out of you? And did that teach you that that's the way to do it with others? That's a boundary. It's holding you and me back from being able to live this open and transparent giving life that only God is going to be able to get involved in and, and change. <clears throat> Stephen, stop moving the clock. All right, listen, I'm convinced that God brought me here because I think there's somebody here who has one of these. I got more than I care to count, and I'm in the business of wall breaking, folks. And I want to invite you to be the same. But when God gets ready to move you, when God gets ready to show you more, when God gets ready to tell you and help you see that there is a life of abundance that you are not yet living and he wants to introduce you to it, when he wants to move us to better, when he wants to move us to next, then there is an example in the word of God that shows us exactly how this plays out. And I love it. More scripture. You ready? Numbers 13, verse 1. Now, let me just set the text. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. No, plagues. Finally, he says, I'm sick of you. Get out of here. He bundles everybody up and they leave and they start walking and they don't know where they're going. God just says, leave. Don't even look back. I don't even wonder where you're leaving. Just move. So they leave and they finally, finally wander through the desert and then it's a long time. And finally, God says to them, all right, it's time. The Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land that I am going to give to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he sent out 12 men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. And Moses gave the men instructions as he sent them to go and explore the land. This is the land that God said he was going to give to the Israelites, the land flowing, think about it, think about it, flowing with milk and honey. So Moses gave them instructions as he sent them in to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country. See what kind of land this is like and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak or few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or is it bad? Do their towns have walls? Are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or is it poor? Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back some samples of the crops that you see because as it happened, it was the season for harvesting the first ripe grapes. And so they went up and explored the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, near Lebo Hamath, going north. They passed through the Negev and arrived in Hebron, where Ahiman and Sheshai and Telmai and all the descendants of Anak lived. The ancient town of Hebron was founded seven years before the Egyptian city of Zoan. Okay. When they came to the valley of Eshol, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large that it took two of them to carry it on a pole between them. They also brought back samples of the pomegranates and figs and they placed, and that place was called the Valley of Eshol, which means the cluster because of the cluster of grapes that the Israelite men cut there. All right, here's the report. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses and Aaron and the whole community of Israel, thousands of people. 
at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. And they reported to the whole community what they'd seen. And they showed them the fruit that they'd taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore. And it is indeed a beautiful country. A land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful. And their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there. And the descendants of Anak, the Amalekites, live in the Negev and the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Flebites and the Tikbites. <laughs> all right, I'm just checking that you're paying attention, huh? <laughs> they all live in the Negev. And the, the Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb was trying to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. And he said, let's go at once to take the land because we can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him, they disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. And so they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge Nobody? Huge. <laughs> we even saw the giants there, the descendants of Anak. And next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they said too. First of all, this is a flat out lie. There's no way these guys went and took a, you know, like a reporter from MSNBC. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Giant, what's your name? Yes, can you tell me, do you think of me as a grasshopper? Okay, I'm just writing down. What's your name? I'm just, okay, thank you very much. This, that didn't happen. So, this is how people with boundaries and walls stuck in their lives respond when God is trying to give them enough. We're about to find out. Then the whole community began weeping aloud. And they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? And then they plotted among themselves. Let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Surely captivity and slavery would be better than this. And then Moses and Aaron fell down on their faces on the ground before the whole community of Israel. Now two of the men had explored the land with the others. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh. They tore their clothing. They tore their clothing which is a sign of remorse and repentance and also anger in the Old Testament. They tore their clothing not because they were afraid but because of the way the community of people were responding to what was meant to be a blessing in their lives. They were so distraught. They said to the people of Israel, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. 
The context of this thing really blows me away every time I think about it. Because what's going on here is the 12 men get sent out to go and explore the land. 80% of them come back and say, you got to be crazy. We can't go in there. Have you seen that place? Their clothes are bigger than our clothes. Their shoes are bigger than our shoes. The cups that they drink from are bigger than our cups. Their saucers are so big. Their beds are crazy huge. We can't live there. There's nothing about that place that says it fits me. I know. I'm hoping you will grow. I think God is trying to say, I want to take you to something that's more than enough. I want to show you what it is. It's bigger than what you have right now. And only 20% of the listeners said, we can go there. That stuff belongs to us. Let's go get it. At the outset, God said to Moses and Aaron, send these men in there to explore the land that what? I want you to fight for? What do he say? I am giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. All right. I got to land this plane. So, what's the process? What's the sequence that we can learn from this example? Here's what I want you to pay attention to. For one, God awakens in our imagination first by announcing to us that he is planning to take us to a place that's flowing with milk and honey. He points to a better version of ourselves and our surroundings that is still coming, and he describes it with enough detail that we feel compelled to move toward it. That's the reason he starts out by telling you where you're going. Because he doesn't want to have to drag you there. He wants it to be so tantalizing that you will be willing to go there. And so he paints this illustrious picture of how beautiful and wonderful it's going to be. And so if you're in this place today, and as we work through those series of questions about where a wall or a boundary might be, and you found in your heart a place where you went, mm, I might have something there, then I believe that the reason God pointed that out to you is because he's planning to take you out. And there is another side that has milk and honey on the other side of it, and he's, and he's trying to get you to go there. Then... Listen to how people respond. Then, when we get close enough to the thing that God's inviting us to, our human response <laughs> is to send an investigation party to go qualify God's promise. We test and see if the promise is really true, because we won't go there if it's really not there. Then in the testing, see, God's so sneaky. It's all right, you can go. But then in the testing, we discover, and folks, I'm not making this up. I'm just reading. I'm just telling you what just happened in the scripture. In the testing, we discover that the gift cannot be accessed or enjoyed in our current state. In fact, 80% of the results we find confirm that it will require a change of us, a change of approach, a change of thinking, a change of belief, because that's what 80% of the 12 said when they came back. So at this point, we could stop and we could say, you know what? 
Okay. We got to get in there. They got big giants. Somebody look up in Wikipedia how to defeat the giants. Anybody? No. That's what happens if God had said, I want you to go fight for it. But that's not what he does, see? He introduces you to the better version of yourself that he's trying to get you to so that you have enough motivation to want to walk toward it. And then all he's requiring is that you will simply obey and go. That's what the 20% said. That's what Joshua and Caleb said. Of the investigators that returned, they said, if we will just go. This is, there's a pattern that's established in this part of the scripture where God says, if you'll simply obey and go, then here's the pattern. First of all, it is God's gift of more than enough to you and to me. End of story. Second, we already have what we need to overcome the obstacle and enjoy the new position. God didn't say when the group came back, you better go off and make some stuff. Go research how to beat the giants. He didn't say any of that. He already knew that all those people had everything they needed to overcome in that place. We already have all that we need. Third, we can surely, we can surely have it. You have to go with that mentality that says this is coming, despite how insurmountable it looks to your eyes. Folks, when you stand up next to a giant, that looks insurmountable. When you see the club that he holds, you feel scared. When you see the size shoe that that brother's wearing, you know that that's going to leave a mark. Somewhere. There's a lot of physical evidence that makes it hard to believe that I could do this. But God is not asking for your doing. He's asking for your going. And the reason he points out what a wonderful moment this is going to be to start with is because he knows when you meet the giant, you're going to need some courage. And if you didn't have the tantalizing draw of literally milk and honey, you might not make it all the way. The current barriers that stop us from enjoying God's new provision can only remain in place if we decline to go. You didn't hear that. The current barriers that stop us from enjoying God's new provision in your life and mine, the boundaries, the walls that stand between you and a better version of you, can only remain in place if we decline God's invitation to go. And beyond that, there is nothing else required. These things are helpless in their defense against us because God is with us and it is His will and He said, I am giving it to you. Nothing else is required. And what I know is, if you're in this place today and He pointed out a place in your life where you saw a wall or a boundary, then what I heard Him say is, I pointed out because I plan to take care of it. All I'm asking for from you is to be ready to go.